The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. First of all, this is a beautiful facility, and your singing is awesome. The music is really, really good. I hope you all understand what a blessing this is, because this is, this is terrific. David, you do a great job. Very nice. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 and following. Now, we believe, do we not, that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God. It is our only rule of faith and practice. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse... 7 and following, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Let's pray together. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth of the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, Father, as we bow before you this day, your day, Lord, we know that every one of us here have suffered in some way. Perhaps some are suffering even this very moment. And no doubt we will all suffer in the future. Now, Father, the Apostle Paul was suffering mightily. And yet in the midst of his suffering, he was able to suffer gladly. So, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come down upon us, that your Spirit would rend the heavens and come down and meet each and every one of us, whatever our situation might be, that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us. Father, if there are any here today who are not yet in Jesus, 
We ask that you would be merciful to them as you have been merciful to so many of us and open their eyes to see. Give them hearts to believe and to repent, to look to the Lord Jesus. Father, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned in my prayer, we all have suffered. You have suffered. Maybe you're suffering right now. No doubt you're going to suffer in the future. How so? Maybe you have looked on as a spouse has slowly deteriorated from a disease and then dies. Maybe you've watched a child go through an illness, as I have, and die. Maybe you've watched as your children, whom you brought up in the faith, you brought to church, you gave them the catechism, you taught them the scriptures, and they've wandered away. And it's breaking your heart, suffering. Maybe some of you have suffered from the economy over the last several years. You have suffered. Maybe you're suffering now and you will suffer in the future. And the Apostle Paul clearly is a man who knows suffering firsthand. Here he is after writing, after establishing the church in Corinth. He's now on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus. He hears there's a problem in Corinth. He immediately goes to Corinth to try to deal with the problem. You can read this as you read between the lines in 2 Corinthians. Apparently, it did not go well. They did not receive his rebuke very kindly. He goes back defeated to Ephesus. He continues his mighty ministry there, of which we read in Acts 18 and 19. And then he... Hears, then he decides he's going to go back and meet the people again. And so he goes up through Troas. He's going to cross over into Macedonia. He's already sent Titus to deal with the people. But Titus comes back to him and meets him in Thessalonica and says, They have understood. They have received your hard letter. And it's in that context, after much suffering, that Paul writes 2 Corinthians. What I want you to notice, first of all, is Paul talking about the treasure of the gospel, the container of the gospel. You'll notice in verse 7 he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, what's the treasure? Clearly, the treasure is the gospel. And what is the gospel? The very fact that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, an expiating, propitiating, reconciling death. That is, the wrath of God was taken away by the blood of Jesus. That is, that our sins were washed away as far as the east is from the west. And he's reconciled us who are enemies of God. Paul says, I have come with this glorious, marvelous, eternal treasure of the gospel. And then he says, now, I have this treasure in earthen vessels. These were clay pots. 
These were of no significance as far as expense is concerned. They were very common clay pots that could easily break or shatter. Now Paul says, I had this eternal, glorious treasure in an earthen vessel. And the earthen vessels, of course, are our bodies. It's an amazing thing. Paul works the gospel and God works the gospel in each of us and through us in our frail, weak, sinful bodies. Isn't that amazing? You look at your own life. You look at the things you fought this week. You look at the things that you've said this week. You look at the things you've done this week. And the devil loves to play on your mind and say, you are a hypocrite. You are a phony. God could never use you. And yet we battle sin each and every day. And the, the true Christian will confess, of course, and he will go back to Jesus in repentance. But the simple fact is that if we were to put all our sins on that screen that upon which we sing, and you were to look at your sins over the past week, and everybody here saw those sins, you wouldn't come back, would you? That's the God we serve. We had this glorious, eternal treasure in earthen vessels. Now he tells us why. Why would Paul do that? Why is it that God would work through frail, weak people like us? And he says that the glory might come to God and not to us. We get no glory. We should not try to usurp any of Christ's glory. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory might alone go to God, not to us. Then he goes on in verses 8 and following, and you'll notice here he's talking about his suffering but he's mingling in this suffering with a sense of joy and cheerfulness. Now, here's a man you know from your reading in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's a man who has suffered mightily. And earlier in chapter 4, he tells us, now we do not lose heart. And here he says, we have been afflicted and not crushed. The word afflicted has the idea you're walking along and it just comes out of nowhere. You're not expecting this. Perplexed here has the idea of like when I was in Japan one time, I was out running in Tokyo, and I couldn't read Japanese, and I got lost. I mean, these roads, it was like me, a rat being in a maze. I could not find my way back. I'm walking down these streets for three hours. You talk about being perplexed. And I was in despair. But nonetheless, Paul says there are times that there are things happening to you and you don't know which way to go. You don't know where the end is. You don't know how to get out of this sort of thing. Paul says we're perplexed, 
but still we're not in despair. Even though we don't know the way out, we're going to trust God. That's what Paul says. He says, goes on further and says that we are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Even though we are being beaten up for our faith, we know God is with us. We know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Jesus said. Even though you walk through the deep waters, they'll not overflow you. Even though you walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched. Will the flame burn you, Isaiah says. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So he says, I'm afflicted but not crushed. I'm perplexed but not in despair. I am persecuted, but not forsaken. Watch this. I am thrown down, but not destroyed. It's like being in a fight, and your feet slip, and the guy that you're fighting with has his sword, and there you are on the ground, face up looking at him. You're at his mercy. He's got the sword. That's literally what the word means there. I am thrown down. I am at the mercy of the one who's about to kill me. He says, I'm thrown down, but I'm not destroyed. Now, why would God allow this suffering? Now, Paul's suffering was clearly in the context of the gospel. And sometimes your suffering is simply in the context of the gospel. You're taking a stand for Jesus in your neighborhood. People laugh at you. They talk about you behind your back. They don't invite you to the Christmas party and all these sorts of things. But sometimes the suffering is the things I spoke about here. So why is it that you suffer? Well, Paul gives us two purpose clauses here. In chapter 4, he says in verse 11, verse, the latter part of verse 10, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. Your suffering, dear friend, in the name of Jesus, proclaims the gospel to people. Then he goes on to say further, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our flesh. Literally what Paul is saying here is you look and you see the putting to death of Jesus and the raising up again of Jesus. The putting to death of Jesus is made manifest in your suffering. And this putting to death of Jesus has the whole idea of humiliation. Jesus came to earth. Jesus became man. Jesus was rejected by men. The people said he's demon-possessed. He's a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. They wrote him off when he died on the cross. He said, see, he's just like all these other criminals. He's a murderer. He's getting what he deserves. That's putting to death the body of Jesus. And you, when you suffer, are suffering the same thing. And you're proclaiming the putting to death of Jesus in your life and your words as people watch you suffer. But then he goes on to say, you're also lifting up the raising up again of Jesus, his exaltation. And when people look at your suffering, what they see is encouragement. And it encourages them also to propagate the gospel. 
to send out the gospel to the community, to the nation, and to the world. It causes them to move ahead in their own personal sanctification or holiness, and it inspires them to grow and to seek after God with greater zeal. Putting it all together then, here's the one point you need to remember. Suffer gladly for the sake of the gospel. Suffer gladly for the sake of the gospel. Now, practically speaking, that raises several questions. Again, why would God do this? Why would God allow my spouse to suffer for years and then die? We were praying for him or her for years. And there were sometimes hope that things were getting better, but in the end it did not get better. Why would God allow our children whom we have brought up in the Lord to wander away? Now, we know they're responsible for their actions, but we also know God is sovereign. Why would he allow that? Why would God allow you who worked hard all your life to suffer economically and lose 30 or 40% of your income and your worth? Why would God do that? Understand this, based on what we said already, God's power, listen, God's power is proclaimed in your weakness, in your suffering, and in your persecution. In your weakness and suffering and persecution, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to other believers, to people in the community. They're watching you. They're watching how you respond. Not only that, but God's people, not just God's powers proclaimed, God's people also are encouraged. They are encouraged, they are inspired, they're moved to sanctification, they're moved to the propagation of the gospel. God does that in them. In Acts chapter 14, Paul's on his first missionary journey. He is in Iconium. Then he is beaten up in Iconium. He comes to Lystra. And while he's in Lystra, the people from Antioch and Iconium come on the scene. They stir up the crowd. They bring him outside of the town. They begin to hit him with stones. They leave him for dead. There's Paul lying on the ground, no doubt covered in blood, unconscious. His friends, his disciples think he's dead. They're wondering, what do we do now? And Paul comes to. He gets up. He dusts himself off. He goes back into Lystra. He continues to preach the gospel there. He goes to the next city, Derby. He preaches the gospel there. And then he comes back to Lystra again to preach the gospel. How is it that a man can do that? And when his friends saw it, they were inspired. It gave them zeal. It gave them a hunger to seek after Christ. Some of you have read and you remember what happened in January of 1956. Jim Elliott and four other young men in the jungles of Ecuador were seeking to reach the Alka Indians 
and they were waiting on them, and the Indians came into the opening with spears eight feet long. The men went out to greet them, and the Indians ran them through. Those spears killed all five of the men. And a few weeks later, Life magazine had a big spread about it, all these pictures, and basically the message was, what a waste of young men's lives. Some of them were married. Some of them had little children. What a waste. Why would men waste their lives on these primitive, savage people? They didn't get it, did they? We know that as a result of what Jim Elliott and those others went through, a few years later, there were numerous families that went back not only to the Alka Indians, but to Indonesia, to Papua New Guinea. And God did mighty, mighty works among, among animistic, cannibalistic, tribal, Stone Age people. Amazing works of God. God does that. You know that, don't you? You know that you're suffering brings about the glory of God. Do you really believe that? Right now where you are, in your circumstances, do you really believe that to be true? Well, that leads to another question. How do you suffer? And a corollary, how do you endure? Well, you suffer the way Paul is suffering. Sometimes you're afflicted, and it just comes out of nowhere. Sometimes you're perplexed, and you just can't figure out why it is that God would allow this to happen. I like to tell people that I have three children on earth, and I have three children in heaven. We lost two who, to, in utero at about five months, and then we lost one. At six and a half weeks, born with multiple birth defects. And yet we have three healthy sons who are married and love the Lord. All three of them have wonderful families. So what was that all about? I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't know. It comes out of nowhere. Sometimes things are perplexing. Sometimes there's persecution. Sometimes there is this being thrown down and you're thrown to the wolves and you think you feel totally abandoned by people. There you are out there for the gospel and people walked off the field and there you are by yourself holding the ball. Sometimes these things happen. I have a friend who was the headmaster of a very prestigious Christian school for a number of years, many, many years. He'd done a marvelous job there, raised all kind of money, built magnificent buildings, and the school, the directors of the school began to move away from the specifics of the gospel. And he began to challenge them and to hold them accountable. And it began to be not just the board, but out there beyond that. And then, you know, the social media kicked in. They, the, his opponents developed a website, and then they had blogs. And they were utterly crucifying this man. All kinds of lies about him. He could not answer them all. At the end, his board of directors deserted him and they asked him to leave. And he, he had an amazing ministry there for many, many years. 
I mean, the man was afflicted. It came out, it was, he was perplexed, persecuted, thrown down. It looks like the bad guys are winning. How is it that you suffer? Well, how is it that you endure? Consider two things, the now and the then. How do you endure now, my dear friends? If you are in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Therefore, you have the life of Christ. You are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that you endure now is through your union with Jesus. And when you're in difficulty, you cry out to him and he says he'll meet you. Now, many years ago, when I was full-time with Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, I had to raise my own support, and there were many months when it was really low. If the money didn't come in, we didn't get it. And here I am in Africa for five weeks, and my wife is there with our three little boys, and money was tight. And more than once, she would go into the closet in our bedroom, and she would get on her face before God, and she would say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. The way that you endure now, because you're united with Jesus, you cry out to him in your affliction, in your perplexity, in your persecution, in your being thrown down, you cry out to him, Jesus, help me. I can't do it. You're my strength. You're my grace. You're my power. I don't have it. You and I don't have anything. You didn't, you didn't earn your salvation and your justification, and you don't keep it in your own personal holiness either. You don't have any holiness in yourself. Your holiness is only that of Jesus Christ. So you hold on to your union with Christ. That's how you endure now. But how about the then? How is it that you can endure then? Two things. One, vindication. Number two, glorification. Now listen. None of us are pristine and pure in our dealings with other people, are we? I mean, there's nobody here who's totally suffered in a righteous way. We always mess it up some way. But nonetheless, those things that you have done in honoring the Lord Jesus and you still suffered with those things or the other things about which I was speaking earlier, whatever those things are, you understand that one day the truth will come out, the clouds will part, and we will understand, I will be vindicated in that day. And then you talk about the suffering now, the physical illness, whatever those things might be. Remember this, you will be glorified when you die. When you die, your soul will be in the presence of Jesus. And as wonderful and as glorious as that is, that's not the end. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the body is sown a perishable body. It will be raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It will be raised in power. 
it is sown a natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. So yes, when you die, your soul is immediately in the presence of Jesus, but he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, you're going to get a glorified body, just like that of Jesus. And you will dwell with him forever on the new earth, and he will begin to reveal all these glorious things to you. Paul says, eyes have not seen ears have not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The glory of heaven, the glory of the new earth is beyond our wildest speculation. This is the hope that we have. This is how you endure. Now, your union with Christ. Then, your glorification and your vindication. Now, what results from this? Well, you get the idea here that when people watch your suffering, zeal will produce propagation. They will see your zeal. They will see your earnest desire to get the gospel out to the nations, and it will motivate them. It will give them zeal to do the same thing. Have you ever noticed how Paul at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, Paul is saying there that he hopes very soon to come to Rome to see these brothers and sisters there while he's on his way to Spain. Now, we don't take much interest in that except to realize back then they thought Spain was the end of the world. Paul is saying, I'm going, if possible, to the end of the world with the gospel. You talk about zeal, and this inspired these people as it inspires you and me. But not only a zeal that promotes propagation, but also a hunger that promotes sanctification. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on in order that I might lay hold of that which was laid hold of me in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's a man who hungers after Christ and his holiness, and it inspires other people to do the same. Zeal, promoting propagation. Hunger, promoting sanctification. And joy, promoting inspiration. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, Now I want you to rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Later on in chapter 4, he says, Now, this momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I mean, here's a man who's beaten five times with 39 lashes, who's beaten three times with rods, who is stoned, which means he is to be executed, and he survived this execution like somebody surviving a lethal injection. And Paul says this momentary light affliction, 
That's how he viewed things. And that inspires people as you look at him, as he's holding on to the Lord Jesus. Now in closing, what do you do with? You just kind of work it up? Just kind of suck it up? Is that how you do it? No. I mean, you have been afflicted. And you have been crushed at times. You have been perplexed. And there have been times, have there not, when you honestly could say, yeah, you know, I've been in despair. And I've been persecuted at times, you might say. And I honestly do feel forsaken. Maybe not by God, but by other people. And there are times I've been thrown down and they've not shown any mercy to me. Not at all. So what do you do? You hold on to the one who was pierced through for our transgressions. Who was crushed for our iniquities. You hold on to the one who said, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry to thee by day, but thou dost not answer. By night, and I have no rest. You look to the Lord Jesus. He was pierced through and crushed. He was forsaken by his Father. The Father did pour out the wrath that we deserve upon him in order that you might be united to him. And when you're united to him, you can look to the fact that even though I do feel afflicted, I am still not crushed. I'm going to look to the Lord Jesus. I will endure now because I'm united with Christ. And I will endure in the future because I know I look to that great day when I will be with him forever and ever. That's how you make it. That's how you make it in this life. Now, that's the truth. That's the truth for the Christian. The glories, the hope, the power, the efficacy that you now have in Jesus is amazing. By faith, hold on. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, None of this applies to you. None of it. There is a sharp distinction. Please understand this. A sharp, dramatic distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. You might be here today and a very, very nice person. But if you are not born again, None of these things apply. You are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, without hope and without God in this world. You're going to go through sufferings, afflictions, the loss of a loved one without any help at all. But that doesn't have to happen. There's no reason at all for anyone here or anyone in this community to suffer alone. 
to suffer without the comfort of the Lord Jesus praying, without the comfort of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. No reason whatsoever. So therefore, what must you do? You must acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, that you're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer. All of us are in some way or another. Confess it and run to Jesus and ask him for his heart. He'll give it to you if you'll ask him in faith. You turn from your sin, you believe on Christ. And he says, I'll put my heart within you so that you can obey my commandments. And I'll cleanse you of all your filth and of all your idols. And I'll bring you into the land which I promised to your forefathers. That's the great hope we all have. Come to Jesus if you're not in Christ. Talk to David or one of the elders afterwards. They can help you with that. They can pray with you and for you. Don't leave here today, my dear friends without making sure you are in Christ. And if you are, walk out with humility, awe, and amazement at God's mercy to you in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for these dear people. Now, Lord, I don't know what they're going through. I don't know their suffering. I don't know what they've gone through in the past. I don't know what they're going through now. I certainly don't know what they're going to go through in the future. But Lord Jesus, you know all these things about them. Now would you comfort them with your presence and with your power. Show them the glory of your salvation. Father, would you work mightily in each and every one that we would live lives that honor you as we look to the Lord Jesus for our hope now and forever. We pray in his name. Amen.